Please stand with me as we read the word of the Lord. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. All right, please have a seat. And if you've got your Bibles, please open up to the book of John, chapter 18. Uh, It's in your notes, um, or it is uh, on the app if you've got that. Feel free to to do that. We are actually uh, in a brand new series starting this week that is leading all the way up to Palm Sunday and Easter called uh, Who Needs God? And we're really just, if Jesus is who he claims to be, then that means that when Jesus makes that statement in John chapter 8, it's profoundly important for us to take the time to pay attention to it. He says this, let's go ahead and just reread back to verse 33. Pilate then went back to the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied, your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you've done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. Verse 37, well, you are king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am king. And and other people have looked at that and said, Jesus is basically saying, you said it. You, you, you nailed it. I mean, absolutely. In fact, the reason that I was born and came into this world is to testify to the truth. Everyone who's on the side of truth listens to me. I've come here that my mission is to testify to the truth, and everyone who is on the side of truth listens to me. Jesus is making an incredibly exclusive claim. And to a guy who's going to struggle with this, we we need to know just for context to know a little bit more about who he's talking to. 
Pilate is an individual who um, is a historical figure. We know about him. We know that he was a Roman governor and supreme judge in that area, in the Judean and Samarian area, from about 26 to 37 AD. That was when he was uh, placed there. There was lots of drama that led up to him getting there, but that's, that's how he got there. And on that, he, was, um, he had three basic job descriptions. As, as this guy who's, who's a representative of Rome, a guy who grew up in the middle of Italy, most people believe, a guy who was, who was most likely a very good soldier general, ultimately is in this position. His three aspects of his job description are to tax people, because look, this is the Roman Empire. We've got wars to, to wage. We need money for that. So any group of people that we overtake, we need to draw a tax from them. But not only that, we need to put up buildings. Rome was incredibly proud of the fact that they had awesome, awesome architecture. So wherever you find a Roman colony, boom, we got to put up some houses. We got to put up some buildings. We got to put up some palaces so that people, as they're going through, we have like an ongoing marketing campaign of how epic Rome is. So we need the taxes for our wars. We need the taxes for our buildings. But the one thing that, that Pilate was really, really in charge of is in order to give this idea, of this facade of Roman power, you have to have power that comes alongside peace. And so his job was to keep the peace. And Rome had a really interesting way of doing this. They would come into an, a, a, a country or an area and they would say, listen, we are, we are your leadership. We are the government. We are your rulers, but we're super cool because we're Romans. We're super cool. We're going to let you judge your own cases. You got an issue? We're going to let you set up your own court system, all that, with very few exceptions. One of those exceptions being execution. If you need to get into the capital punishment department, then you've got to go through us for a couple reasons. Number one, we're Romans and we're really good at capital punishment. Like, we're awesome at torture. Like, seriously, we're the boss. We're pros at this. So if you want to know someone who really does good executions, it's us. You're amateurs. Let us do it, number one. Number two, every colony we go into that we allow them to have their own ju uh, judge and jury to lead to a capital punishment, it's abused. I mean, you might say that we're barbaric, but at least we're just okay? We don't trust you Jews to do this on your own. So if it's going to be a capital punishment case, it's got to go through us, the Roman government. And that was the law of the land with a very few exceptions. Sometimes they would look the other way if the Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious elite, had to do something like an Acts 7 when uh, Stephen is cr crushed to death with stones. He's murdered by stoning. That, that's something where sometimes they would look the other way. But there are key points where this protocol was absolutely adhered to. And that was around the time of Passover, which just so happens to be when Jesus is brought to him. Jesus is brought to him when Roman soldiers are at a high alert in Jerusalem. As far as the Roman Empire is concerned, the terror threat goes from here, way up here at this time around Passover. And they can't figure out what is it about Passover that makes these Jews get crazy? Like seriously, they just gather around, they eat food, they talk about how they were all slaves and oppressed by a, a, a larger empire than them. And then they, come, they turn around, they want to like revolt against us. This is just so unfair. What is it about Passover that makes them think this way? But every time around Passover, they would note that the Jews would start to get messianic. They start talking about needing a savior and a Messiah that could deliver them from oppression, just like with Moses. And they keep talking about that. So at this time of year, Passover, they want to make sure that there's more boots on the ground. There's more soldiers in the streets so that every around, so, so that he can keep his job. 
so that Rome can have that facade of we are in control. And so we've got more soldiers, more centurions. The streets are more full so that everyone understands you don't revolt. You don't start a riot. You don't get into that situation. And all of a sudden, he's got Jesus. And Caiaphas brings in Jesus with with all these other uh, Sanhedrin leadership. They go to his house. Okay, now his house is normally in Caesarea Maritima. If you go on the Israel trip, you can actually see where his house was. It's right on the coast. Beautiful, epic, beautiful. But during the Passover, when the terror threat is up here, he moved his location to right outside of the Temple Mount uh, to what we believe is Antonia Fortress. That's where he would kind of like take up his uh, temporary residence. And so these guys come to him first thing in the morning when they when absolutely disrupt his sleep, disrupt him. They don't even go to, into his house because they don't want to defile themselves. And they say, you need to deal with this Jesus. He's just like, what? You, you deal with this Jesus. You want to kill him? Kill him. They're like, we can't do that. You've got a rule against that. You're Rome. It's like, oh yeah, that's right. Okay. And so then he has to interrogate Jesus. He brings Jesus into the house. And in that whole conversation, he eventually gets to this thing where Jesus says, listen, I have come here. I was born to bring into this world truth. I'm a messenger of the truth. Anyone who is on the side of truth listens to me. To which Pilate responds cynically, what is truth? And you can't blame him. You cannot blame Pilate for asking that cynically. This poor guy, and I'm not, you know, I don't throw the Roman Empire a whole lot of like sympathy, but this guy had it, he had it stacked against him from the get-go. He is a, a individual who's a Roman citizen and in the elite system, and it was understood that Rome's, Romans deify their emperors and deify the Caesar. These people were looked at gods on earth. Yeah, they've got all the Roman mythological gods to worship, but they knew that they could worship God on earth through the emperor or through, the, through Caesar himself. And so what does he do when he comes into Palestine? He wants to put out that vibe. Hey, you know what? We're following God. And so they've got the emperor Tiberius' face on their banner stands. And they're marching into Palestine with this. And it freaks the Jews out. Why? Because you're not allowed to have any graven images of God. And, And to say that this God, this person is God, is blasphemy. And they flip. For five days, they riot. And this guy, thinking Rome's going to back me up on this. I mean, we're, we're coming in here putting out the vibe that Rome is in power. We're in charge. Rome doesn't. They throw him under the bus. He actually is in a situation where Rome doesn't back him up. And not only that, Tiberius, the emperor that he is showcasing as God on earth, doesn't back him up. Because Tiberius breaks custom and says, you know what? I'm not, I'm not really comfortable being worshipped as a god. And Pilate's like, that would have been good to know. Jesus, what is truth? What is truth? What is truth in Rome? Who's God? I have no idea. I'm in this God-forsaken land. I'm getting thrown under the bus by my own people. And you know what? You come from a people. Do I believe that you guys have the truth? I've watched the hypocrisy of your Jewish leaders. My predecessor had to go through three high priests before we landed one that we could trust that was willing to work with us, Joseph Caiaphas. And Jesus, he's the guy who delivered you to me. And I know that you're innocent, and you know that you're innocent, and your own people are doing this. You talk to me about truth. What is truth? What is truth? And in that moment, Jesus is communicating to him something. Pilate, you are at a crossroads culturally between this belief system and this belief system. You have no idea what truth is. And stuck in between the unforgiving empire of Rome 
and the hypocrisy of what the Sanhedrin was pulling off, in between the two, there's Pilate, and Pilate sees Jesus. Jesus is right there, and Pilate doesn't know what to do with him. The one thing Pilate wants is for Jesus just to go away because he was too confusing and too difficult. It was too much of a problem. He just wants him to just ease out of the situation so that Pilate could walk away from the situation. And the question that he asks is is actually the same question that's been asked every generation afterwards. And and honestly, a lot of people who grew up where they're interacting with a a, a culture that has got so many different plausible divides on what is truth, all of a sudden we look and we see there's Jesus and people today have a difficult time staying with Jesus. Some people grew up in the church, had a faith in Jesus or proclaimed a faith in Jesus and at some point they walked away. And this is something that, that, I mean, every generation you see this happening, but we saw in, in America this happening at a higher rate from the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s and on. And then something happened in 2001. Do you guys remember this? 9-11? 9-11 takes place and all of a sudden the country gets really different. All of a sudden, you're driving through Joliet. Do you remember this? Every banner, every, every billboard, instead of like, you know, advertising the price of gas, or whatever, they were, they were putting up on their billboards, God bless America. Like everyone before like was like, America, me. You know, that, but now everyone's super patriotic and spiritual too, like God bless America. And like everyone's, everyone's going to church and synagogue. I mean, the, the places were full and it, and it lasted. It was really like powerful for like three weeks. Three whole weeks, man. People were like, were just, man, passionate about their faith and they were following God with all their heart and God bless America. And it was right around this time um, that a guy uh, named uh, Sam Harris, a neuroscientist, wrote a book called The End of Faith. And as a neuroscientist, he was communicating that religion is not rational. It's not something that we should believe in. And he shops this around to publisher after publisher after publisher, and everybody's rejecting it. Why? Because right after 9-11, when all the billboards are reading God Bless America, who wants to have a book? Who's going to read a book that's saying that God doesn't exist? And so 12 publishing houses rejects, reject Sam Harris's manuscript until one actually picks it up, and people eat it up. For 33 weeks, it's on the New York Times bestseller list. Right after this, you have Richard Dawkins, who writes The God Delusion, talking uh, in a very, Dawkins is, is, man, that guy is venomous in in how visceral he talks. But he he talks about how God is a delusion. It's it's, it's absolutely ridiculous. And he's very clear about his point and his purpose at the beginning of his book when he writes this. If this book works as I intend, religious readers who open it will be atheists when they put it down. Right after this, uh, Christopher Hitchens writes, uh, God is not great. And three million people purchased that book, talking about that all religions are the problem. And and the interesting thing is that a lot of Christians read Sam Harris's book, um, The the End of Faith, and they actually said, yeah, Sam, we we agree with you. Like, we agree that that religion is the problem, that it's man-made and it could be manipulated and twisted. But we we have a relationship with God and it's different. So he's like, no, 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 no. You misunderstood me completely. And so he wrote another book called A Letter to a Christian Nation. And this is a book I read. And as you're reading this book, you realize that what he's trying to communicate is Christians. I said in End of Faith that religion is bad. You're not on my side. Christians, you are the problem as well. Now these uh, individuals that, that started from that point on, like, it wasn't like in the 2000s, there's this huge surge in atheism. Like, man, there's just so many atheists now. 
But what we saw was a huge percentage of people that took that normal rate of walking away from their faith and it just went exponentially higher into kind of like this in-between agnosticism type of thing. Mostly male, mostly liberal, mostly... Um, and guys who, who weren't like, they, it wasn't that they had all the answers. They weren't saying like, like, listen, I'm sold out. Atheism is so attractive. I want to put my heart and my, my life into this. This gives me meaning. They weren't saying that. They were just saying, listen, all I'm saying is this. Don't, like, don't ask me the questions. Don't, don't, don't try to interrogate my, my rationale, my reasons. I don't know everything, okay? All I'm saying is that the religion I grew up in, the God I believed in as a kid, no longer seems compelling to me. The faith of my childhood doesn't answer the questions that I'm experiencing in adulthood. And so what I'd like to do is I'd like us to stand there with Pilate and Jesus and interrogate that question of what is truth. Because Pilate is trying to figure out an answer and is burned out on how many options are out there. Today, we are at such a crossroads, all of us. And, and I'm, I'm not going to talk about atheism like those people out there. Honestly, if you've walked away from your faith you might be here. I mean, I hope that you're here. I hope that someone invited you, and even if you're like, I don't affirm this Jesus that you guys are singing to and learning about, I hope that you're here because you're, you're gathering information and trying to understand what you don't believe. But I'll say this, that my hope and my goal in the course of the next couple of weeks, ramping up to Palm Sunday, ramping up to Easter, is that by the end of that, you will be compelled that Jesus was right when he said that all who seek truth, listen to me that you'll find that he is the way, the truth, and the life. That claim that John has recorded earlier in the book in John 14, 6, that that actually is a damning truth if it's not true. But if Jesus was accurate, then we have amazing hope. Wherever you're at, the truth is, is that if you're walking away from faith, you're walking towards something else. We cannot move away from something and move without moving towards something else. And in your notes, I think I've left out the towards, but it's, it's there. You cannot move away from something without moving towards something else. And this is why I'm so grateful to the new atheists for this. It's not ambiguous. If you're walking away from faith, you actually can know where you're going. You can actually know what you believe in and you can wrap your, your brain around that belief system because they have specified it. And... Um, uh, a pastor by the name of Andy Stanley did a bunch of research to try to get down all the tenets, and so that, that's helpful. But the truth is, is that, that if we, we can actually know where we're leading. And, and if, there, if Sam Harris and uh, Dawkins were up here, uh, Hitchens wouldn't be able to because he's passed away. But if Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins were here and they could communicate to you, I think that they would communicate the very things I'm telling you. That, this is, that they would say that this is true. And they, about atheism, they would probably agree. That atheism is, atheism is a complex belief system that logically leads to some unsettling conclusions. Harris would agree with that. Now, the fact that atheism is a complex belief system that logically leads to some unsettling conclusions doesn't make it inherently wrong. Just because something is unsettling doesn't mean it's not true. Jesus and Pilate, Jesus is communicating truth to Pilate and it is radically unsettling to him. So just because something is unsettling doesn't mean it's not true. I have a 16-year-old who drives. That's unsettling, but it's true, okay? How many of you guys are Cubs fans? I know, hands down. How many of you are Sox fans? Okay, here's an unsettling reality. October happened, okay? They won the pennant. That may be unsettling to you. I just can't get up. It's true, okay? 
What Jesus said was unsettling but true. And we need to understand that just when, when we're reading into, when we're understanding what the new atheists are helping us know about what atheism is all about, just because it's unsettling doesn't inherently mean that it's not true. We need to interrogate that truth as people who are thinkers. The first tenet uh, of new atheism, and the first three are, are maybe new to you. The last three, everyone who's gone to school understand. But the first is the illusion of mind. If there is no God, there is no you in you. Uh, there's, there's no Errol. And there's no Jason. I mean, there's no you there. It's, it, that's, a, that's an illusion to think that I am, I am more than just biology. My brain is an organ just like my liver, okay? And so there's no like mind there where I, I'm like choosing to do this. That, that's an illusion that I'm, that, that, that I'm thinking that. Uh, Christopher Hitchens, one of the, the superstars. And all these guys were rock stars when they first came out. They were like on college campuses, Hitchens, Dawkins, and Harris. They were selling their books. They were on the late night shows. People wanted to hear from them. Then all of a sudden, uh, Hitchens gets um, esophageal cancer. And when he realizes that it's terminal, he decides to prove all of those goofballs who say that there are no atheists in foxholes wrong by showing that he was going to go to his last breath holding firm to his atheism his belief that there is no God. And so he writes this book called Mortality. And in Mortality, he documents the, basically the decline of body. And in the beginning of the book, he's writing it. And then eventually he can't write it anymore. And he's got to, he has to dictate it to his wife. And by the end, uh, there's, I, think, I believe there's just like just sentences dictated because that's all he could get out. But in this book, uh, before he passed away in 2011, in this book, um, he, he showcases conversations he's having with his doctors. And his doctors kept on saying, Christopher, your body is getting stronger. Or Christopher, your body is, is, is actually rejecting the medicine that we're giving it. Christopher, your body is actually starting to surge. And he said, enough. And he said, I finally told them, listen, you need to understand something. I don't have a body. I am a body. There is no separation between my mind and my body. This is all one. I don't have a body. I am a body. Now, Christopher Hitchens is far more smart than I am. He was far more smart than I am in a billion years, okay? And, and if, if you agree with that, you, I mean, and listen, I've been wrong before. I, I, I believe that he's totally wrong. You could agree with that. And if you agree with that, you have to recognize that if this is true, then try to live like that. Try to live like you're just a fancy bag of biology. And the person next to you, they're not a person, they're just a fancy bag of biology. I mean, we're just like organisms moving around. You're going to go out and you're going to go out to eat today and you're going to just feed your biology by other biologies and you're going to eat with other, other biologies that you're putting up with. But it's not really people. There's biology. Super complex fancy, but fancy bags of biology. This isn't livable. The illusion of mind is a reality. If you divorce God from the equation, that's what you have to go with. And if that's, that's where you're at, okay, go there, but try to live that way. Secondly, not only the illusion of mind, but the illusion of free will. Um, Harris has written the most on this. It's called determinism. And Webster Dictionary um, translate, or, um, defines determinism as all events that are caused by things that happen before them and that people have no real ability to make choices or control what happens. You think that you chose to fall in love. You didn't. You think you chose who you got married to. You didn't. You think you chose what you're wearing right now. Spoiler alert, you didn't. You made that decision only because of the fact that you, everything in your biology up to this point determined that. It could have been predicted that you were going to wear what you're wearing today. That's determinism. 
Harris says, every decision you have ever made was determined by your biology. Objectively, everything that you are aware of or impulse to or impulse to resist something, all that is preceded by nerve histories. And you're a product of variables that you're not responsible for. You're a collection of genes. You have hundreds of millions of neurons and a hundred trillion synapses. You didn't pick how many receptors your neural physiology would have at your disposal that dictate these decisions. Everything you do in life comes from the ocean of prior causes. And he's got a really scientific word for this. Sam Harris does. His word for this is luck. Sam Harris says that, that the word for this is luck. You're lucky. That, 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 you, that you think that if, if things are going good in your life, it's because of all of the physiological decisions that you've made because of the physiological reality that you came into those decisions with. He, Sam Harris says, if I say anything that changes your mind, you had no choice in the matter. If you walk away and think I'm a lunatic, that also you have no control over. The universe is pulling the strings and you are at its disposal. Now, if you've taken the concept of God out of the equation, this is your truth. And you could be right. I mean, I could be totally wrong. But this is unlivable. Stephen Hawking, the brilliant, brilliant, brilliant scientist and you, uh, who has just crazy, crazy smart. He's confined to a wheelchair. He says, he says you know, it's, uh, ironically, even though I'm a determinist, I realize that even when I look at all the other determinists out there, they believe that everything is determined. They still look both ways before they cross the street. Why? Because you can't live under that reality. It, it's, it, it's, there's no possible ramifications of reality in there. That's an illusion. Not only that illusion, but also the illusion of value. There's no real value, just ascribed value. That means that nothing is valuable except that you give it a mythological value or, or a illusory value. The person that you're in love with, they're not valuable. Your kids, they're not valuable, but they're valuable because you say they're valuable. They're not really. There's nothing that dictates that says that they're inherently valuable or that justice is inherently valuable or that people and, and people groups or life is valuable. It's not. If you want to make it valuable, that's fine. But listen, this is all a myth. We're writing this as we go. We have no right to look back on Nazi Germany and say that what they were doing was wrong because they could ascribe their own value. They're, they could devalue some people and elevate the value of others. And because of the fact that humanity is an accident, we can ascribe whatever values we have as we go along, and we should try to make the best decisions. But it's all like up in the air. It's not tethered to anything. See, this is where Jesus, when he's saying that all truth is coming from me, anyone who's, who's listening for truth listens to me, we see as followers of Jesus. Now, this could be true, okay? If this is true, then that... Everything I just said, those guys are right. That's true. But see, what I see is I see within our faith this amazing reality that every individual is inherently valuable because we're created in the image of God. It means that no matter what your background, your race, your, your, and all of that, we have inherent value, not because my culture says you're valuable, but because God says you're valuable. And that's transcendent over all cultures. See, we could say, I mean, you could almost say, listen, your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth, let's just coexist. And I'm totally cool with people like cooperating and listening to each other. Hey, we disagree on something, that's cool. Your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth. But the problem is that when value is an illusion, it sneaks on over and bleeds into the department of justice. 
And just, there's no sane person that will ever say, hey, like they would say, your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth. They'll never say, your justice is your justice, my justice is my justice. You act however way you want towards me and my family, it's totally okay because your justice is your justice. If you devalue me, that's, that's totally fine because I have to embrace the fact that my justice is different than yours and I can't prosecute you. See, if that's the case, then justice is just what I want it to be. And that could be totally inconsequential and change as times go on. Whenever we reach outside of our biology to hold some other biology accountable, we're trying to find justice, some standard. And Jesus is saying, yeah, that's me. I am the truth. I am the standard. Now, the last four, our last three are things that we grew up, if, again, if you went through high school, you, you know these things, um, that everything came from nothing, um, that before the Big Bang, there was no time, there was no matter, there was no space. But then all of a sudden, all of a sudden there's time and matter and space and laws to govern uh, physics and biology and chemistry and measurable. Like, like you could predict the, the results because it's all like, it's so orderly and incredibly intricate. But before that, there was nothing. There was nothing and then there was everything. And that's, that's a belief that's out there. And, and, it's, and it really causes um, atheists to have a hard time because and Charles, uh, uh, Richard Dawkins talks about this. He says, you know, the, my problem is, is that we can thank Charles Darwin for helping us out with natural selection and evolution, but we don't have a Richard, we don't have a, a Charles Darwin for cosmology helping us understand how everything came to be, what happened that led to all this, and how is it that everything, even though all of our, our instruments say that everything has to come from something, we don't have any evidence to that case. We're still looking for our Charles Darwin of cosmology. Everything came from nothing. Fifth, um, the first life came from no life. Now this is, this, is, this is tough because no matter who you talk to scientifically, if they say that the first life was a simple cell organism, even though it's a simple cell organism, the simple cell organism they're describing is radically complex. And the... the postulation is that, that the hypothesis is that there was nothing, no life, and all of a sudden, there's life, and radically complex life. Zero life that just leads to life. There's nothing in our world that has zero life, and all of a sudden, something goes, I'm alive, and it starts to grow and evolve and develop. That just doesn't happen, and so the first life coming from no life is goofy. I don't know if you've ever been um, far enough away from a situation that it was easy to make it a simple situation, like if there's friends of yours that are having a fight, like they're in their marriage, and you're just like, what's their deal? They just need to learn to communicate. That's easy to say because you're over here, right? And then you get closer into the situation, and you find out it's far more complicated. The closer you get to a situation, the more complicated you realize it actually is. Well, you don't get much further from where we are right now than first life. Whether that's Adam or a single-cell organism, you don't get much further from, from that. That's the, about as far as you can get. And so it's easy from a distance to say, oh yeah, well, it's a simple cell. It's not developed. It's a simple cell organism that developed all this. Even the most simple cells was radically complex. Francis Collins, who's the head of the human uh, genome uh, DNA department, he, this is like one of the most coveted scientific positions possible. This guy's a Christian. And he, and he says, what we see is lifeless matter. We go, we go from lifeless matter, nothing, to the digital elegance of DNA like that. Lifeless matter to the digital elegance of DNA like that. There is no accident. That's what I believe. 
Now, you could believe that, that the first life came from no life, but it's, that's the thing that's difficult to explain. And Charles Dawkins, I mean, he, he has a hard time with this as well. And so what he, what he, he says is this, he says, look, um, so we're left with the rather paradoxical result that people who are trying to work out how life originated on this planet are totally wasting their time because the theory we're seeking is not a plausible theory. It's an exceedingly implausible theory. And, and, and the Christians are like, yeah, but well, the, the, what about the theory that God did it? That's implausible. You can't measure God. You can't, there's no evidence of God. It's an implausible theory. Okay, well, Richard, what would you say is a plausible theory? Well, don't put me in the corner on this, but aliens. That's Richard Dawkins' most plausible theory of how life was seeded on this planet, to which I want to say, Richard, Richard, come on. Come on, aliens, Richard? And he would say, listen, I'm not saying that's how it happened. I'm just saying that it, it had to happen somehow, and we don't have any evidence. And so, God, you can't measure or do experiments on or, or reproduce. And so I'm going to say that it was aliens who we can't measure or have evidence of and re reproduce. It's easier to believe in them. Aliens. And again, I'm not trying to beat up Richard Dawkins, because um, again, Richard Dawkins is crazy smart, way smarter than me. But when you have to divorce yourself out of God in the equation, you have to look for something. As he said, we're not seeking a plausible theory. We're, we're trying to find something. But we have nothing to go on. The final tenet of, of atheism, as defined by the new atheists and old atheists, is that natural selection is responsible for all life after the first life. So all of everything that has come to be, all of the, the intricacies of of, of how animals are and, and how the variations of, of species are, that that was all completely randomly happening through the process of time and mutation. And the thing about it is that you can't, again, you, you could, if, if, you, if you're like, man, no, I, actually, I totally, I'm a science guy. Awesome. Open up science books and look at biology and read natural selection and listen to what you're hearing. In the, at the end of The God Delusion, Richard Dawkins is talking about natural selection, and he talks about it in a way that sounds like he's making fun of it. He's not, but it sounds like he's making fun of, it, of the, the theory that he is espousing. Listen to him when he says this. He says, think about it. On one planet, and possibly only one planet in the entire universe, molecules that would normally make nothing more complicated than a chunk of rock, Molecules that would normally make nothing more complicated than a chunk of rock gather themselves together into chunks of rock-sized matter of such staggering complexity that they're capable of running and jumping and swimming and flying and seeing and hearing and capturing and eating other such animated chunks of complexity, capable in some cases of thinking and feeling and falling in love with yet other chunks of complex matter. Now, it sounds like he's making fun of it. He's not. He's like, this is like... This is amazing. Like, isn't this beautiful? How accidental all this happened. And he says at the end uh, of that statement, he says, we now understand essentially how the trick is done. I contend that you cannot listen to someone talking about natural selection or anything else scientifically without hearing a definition and a description of an intelligent precise, focused, caring, directing person. Whichever scientific persuasion you're rolling with, you cannot divorce from that the amazing precision and design and reality 
that someone was there. If only we knew who. We do. When Jesus responds to Pilate, he's responding to us as well as we're sitting in the confluence of different cultures and pluralities and different perspectives. And in the midst of all that, there's Jesus. And Jesus is telling us this. I am the way. I am the truth. I am alive. You're not looking for an ideology. You're looking for me. Now, you may believe everything that I just, you know, went through. But you might be someone who says, listen, I I walked away from my faith. I don't believe all that. I don't buy all that. I don't live like that. Well, the guys who are really smart say, yeah, that's really what you believe. When you take God out of the equation, that's what you have to wrap your heart and your mind around. But the truth is that you probably walked away from your faith for none of those reasons. You probably walked away from your faith because something happened that disappointed you or you you started off on a path of your own decisions that you knew were far from God. It was difficult to justify a relationship with him in your rebellion. And these smart guys who are smarter than anyone you know, smarter than your parents and your pastor, these smart guys come up with these theories that seem like that would be a good reason to buy the fact that everything I grew up believing just wasn't truth. My hope, if that's you, if that's someone that you care about, in the next few weeks, you'll have an opportunity to realize that perhaps you left the faith of your childhood with Jesus at the center prematurely, and that this Jesus is in fact king, that this Jesus is in fact creator, this Jesus is in fact the one who has made a way back home for you. I do not believe and I will not believe that you have no value, that your kids have no value, that your life is purposeless, that came from nothing on purpose and is leading to nowhere on purpose. I reject that. But I don't reject that because that feels right. I reject that because that is the claim of Christ. Everyone who listens for truth, who's on the side of truth, Jesus says, that truth is found in me. Amen?